Hi, it's Lori Gibbs, and you're listening to the Yuck Yucks Podcast. And I love you. Sign up at yuckyucks.com to become a VIP member for a chance to win great prizes every month. You will also receive discounts, special offers, and notifications about special shows before they're even announced to the general public. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Be sure to visit us at www.yuckyucks.com. Twitter. Twitter. And follow us on Twitter using hashtag YYCP. You're listening to the Yuck Yucks Comedy. I don't think so. Welcome to the Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. With your host, Jake Hirsch. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. What's cracking up, my little yuckamaniacs? This is your host, Jake Hirsch. Jesus. Who's running the control? Okay, there we go. God, God. I find the older I get, the more of an asshole I become, just in a sense that uh, I'm, I'm just, I don't know what it is. You know, like when I was young and spry and uh, full of life, I, I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. You know, I'd speed down the street. I would, you know, yell stupid stuff out the car window. I would flip people off. I would just do a lot of risky stuff. And now as I get older, I just find that the more I'm, you know, kind of a curmudgeon. I'm becoming a curmudgeon. I'm like 41 years old, and I'm just, uh, I'm cranky. You know, now when I walk down the street to pick up my mail, and a carload of teenagers pass by speeding, I give them the look. I give them the evil eye. You know, and I'm thinking back, man, like, when did I turn into such an old, cranky dink? That's what I'm kind of wondering, because... I find out the older that I get, yeah, the more, the more I, you know, I act like my parents probably did, <laughs> or I despised an adults is the way that I, I probably acted. Uh, anyway, hey, welcome to the show. This is a very special show for me, and I'm sure that, as you can see by the title of this episode, uh, this was a very, very important uh, person, ended up being a very important person in my life, uh, and I'm talking about none other than Mr. Mark Breslin. Yes, the founder, co-founder of Yuck Yucks. And uh, I'll explain to you why. Just to kind of give you... And, and you know what? I actually read this on someone's status a couple of weeks ago. It said, hey, podcasters, yeah, you don't need to do the 10-minute intro after, you know, on every episode. But you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. And it does not necessarily mean it's going to be 10 minutes long. But I do feel that it's important to kind of give... Uh, you know, my two cents uh, on the interview and, you know, what's kind of going on out there at the clubs and, and what's, you know, what's what the word on the street is, apparently, according to Huggy Bear, what the word on the street is. Uh, yeah, this is a very, very uh, important episode to me. And I'm going to explain why. Um, you see, just just to kind of give you guys a little bit of background, you know, a couple years ago, I was working the streets, man. I was, a, I was an investigator. I was a criminal investigator for the state of Texas. I worked for the state of Texas doing criminal investigations. And uh, I couldn't imagine where I am two years later. To be sitting here in this chair hosting this show, this, you have to understand something. This is a complete turnaround for me. Massive turnaround. It was a big, big risk. You know, I got out of that line of work. I spent way too much time in that line of work, and I went back to school. I was like, I got to go back to school. I got to, you know, see what the, 
see what the hell's going on out there. And uh, I went back to school for oil and gas. Yes, oil and gas. I figured this was the one industry that uh, a lot of my family members worked in for a very long time and were making and are still making a hell of a living. Like one hell of a living. Money I could never in a million years even think about making that type of money. So anyway, I go back to school. My brothers tell me, hey, man, you know, go to school, get your education in oil and gas, find something that you're good at. And for me, it was sales. So it was more of the, the supply chain procurement side of things, contract negotiations, stuff like that, and come to Calgary. This is the wild, wild west of, of uh, or it's still the gold rush, so to speak, of oil and gas. People are here just making crazy amounts of money. Come and make money. And so I did. I stopped law enforcement. I, I quit my job. Uh, I moved up to Canada, or I moved back to Canada, rather, and uh, went to school. And it actually ended up <laughs> being the worst time to get into oil and gas, uh, as many of you know, with the economy the way it is right now. Uh, very rough times. And, uh, you know, I went back to school with this renewed faith in making tons of money and and, and stuff like that. And, and I started doing podcasting and I started recording shows and I started, you know, doing all this type of stuff. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, I produced very, very successful shows, three of them uh, that went on to get a bunch of listeners and to kind of get me out there and known to people. And this was something that I never in a million years would ever imagine doing. And then I got into comedy. I came back to town, met up with an old friend of mine. You guys might know him, Chris LaBelle. And he kept telling me, Jake, you need to, you, you're a hilarious writer, man. You got to get into comedy. You got to get into comedy. He pushed, he pushed, he pushed. My brother, Chris, pushed and pushed. And he said, hey, man, you got to get up there. You got to try an amateur night. And I got up there and I did it. And it went amazing. And now I understand in interviews why people say stand-up comedy is so addicting. And there's a part of me that wishes that... I could rewind time and go back to when I was 18, 19 years old and just started this business a hell of a lot earlier because a lot of the comics I speak to in these interviews, for some reason, they seem to think 10 years is a very short amount of time in this, in this business. And I guess for this business, it is. It's a very tough business to make it. And I think sometimes I lose sight of that. I don't stop and, and appreciate the blessings that I have had in this short amount of time. So when I heard Mark Breslin was coming to town to do some, you know, scouting and, uh, you know, have some people do some showcases and stuff for him, as, as, as Mark tends to do, he goes around the country to the clubs and he visits and he kind of sees who's out there and, and uh, you know, checks out who the rising stars are. So I, I reached out to him and I said, hey, Mark, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. At the time, I, I was hosting my other show, Friday Night Lights. And I said, I would love to have you on the program. Can we, uh, you know, at this point, hey, I don't care. I just, you know, if you're willing to consider it, I will, I'll do a phone and interview, whatever. Whatever you can give, I'll take. doesn't matter if it's 15 minutes or an hour. And unexpectedly, I see this email pop up back in my, uh, in my inbox. And it says, hey, Jake, this is Mark. Why don't you come down to the hotel? We can do it there. We can find a conference room or, or you know, let's meet in person and do this. This is, you know, this sounds like it, it could be a lot of fun. 
And so off I went, and I met Mr. Breslin downtown at his, at his hotel, and we found a, a nice little meeting area, and I set up my equipment, and I interviewed him. I interviewed Mark. And it was probably one of the best interviews I've ever done in my life. And I think the reason for that was because I find that if you have a real passion for wanting to know someone's story, and it's a huge responsibility to be able to tell that story and ask the right questions and to, to, to get the questions that nobody has asked yet. Because I do my research. I look at every person that I interview. I have a little research assistant that, that uh, looks up facts and interesting things. And I read up and I watch videos and I listen to interviews and previous podcast interviews. I listen as much as I can. I always try to approach each interview like it's a couple of buddies just talking shop in the garage. But it's important to know the background of who you are interviewing so you have some things to go back to. So when I started reading about Mark Breslin's bio, it was just so impressive how this guy just happened to, and he says this interview, you know, in the interview, he, just, he was at the right place at the right time. And he took a risk. And with that risk, it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And here we are today. I was so just impressed with Mark Breslin and the amount of history that he has in this business uh, that I automatically knew that this was someone I needed to become friends with and keep in contact with. You know, and part of this whole thing was that I, I have this deep passion for performing. I love to perform, whether it be behind a microphone whether it be behind a video camera, whether it be writing, whether it be whatever the case is, I have a love for performing. And Mark Breslin was this icon in the industry that everybody looks up to and everybody, you know, you it's synonymous. Canada comedy equals Mark Breslin. And it equals yuck yucks. I mean, I've had comedians in my studio that have told me that people didn't even call comedy clubs comedy clubs. They called it yuck yucks. Are you going down to Yucks tonight? I mean, this is a legendary and very historical brand of comedy. So you can only imagine how honored I was that I eventually got to join the Yuck Yucks family. And we're talking two years into me switching over to comedy, like just taking this completely unknown path in my life and trying to go as far as I can with it. I implore you to get to know Mark Breslin on a different level. You know, this man has been painted with a different brush in a lot of people's books. But you truly don't get to know somebody until you get to sit down with them for an hour and, and ask them all the questions that you want to ask. And that's the opportunity I took, and that's the opportunity that I got, and I made the most of it. And I think this is probably one of the best interviews that I've ever done, like I said, and probably one of the best interviews I've heard Mark Breslin do. I got to ask him all the questions I wanted to. And this was coming from somebody who has a very deep passion for the business. And uh, I think that kind of gave me an unbiased edge, too, because I didn't come at it from a performer. I didn't come at the interview as someone who was under contract with Yuck Yucks or, or one of the comedians here or uh, anybody that has ever done business uh, in comedy before. 
or performed comedy before. So I think it was definitely the interview that I wanted to do. And I'm hoping that one day when I get that follow-up interview with uh, Mr. Breslin, that uh, I get to ask him different questions coming from a comedy side or a different uh, performance point of view. But in saying that, I want to say thank you to Mr. Breslin for giving me this amazing opportunity to get to know some of these amazing artists across the country and, and performers all over the world and for taking a chance on a 41-year-old guy who didn't have a lick of experience in the comedy world and allowing me an opportunity to come and entertain you guys. So without further ado, here's Mr. Mark Breslin. My guest today is truly a pioneer in the Canadian comedy scene. He has been the creative force behind such hit TV shows as The Late Night with Joan Rivers, Kenny vs. Spenny. He's also expanded his wide range of talents in not only radio, but as a producer, talk show host, best-selling author, and performer. If that wasn't enough for you, he was the person that helped launch the careers of Jim Carrey, Howie Mandel, Rick Moranis, Jeremy Hotz, and Russell Peters. He also just happens to be the owner and founder of the nationwide comedy club Yuck Yucks. He was also recently added to the short list of the one of the most influential people to come out of Toronto. It's my honor to welcome Mr. Mark Breslin. How are you? Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time. And, and it was a really lovely recitation of my resume, but really, <laughs> what have I done lately? <laughs> well, before we do jump into your legendary career, maybe you can tell me a bit about your background, where you grew up, and, sure. and uh, yeah, some of your childhood. Yeah, I was born in Toronto in 1952, um, and I had a... Um, an unusual background in that my parents were much older when they had me. My father was 53, my mother was already four. I had two older sisters that were 19 and 24 years older than myself. So it was really like being raised by three mummies, right. which is why I have a triple eatable complex and I'm so screwed up. <laughs> and what kind of a kid were you? Were you, were you always uh, were you producing uh, comedy at the supper table? or, or did you No, but learning? when I was three or four, I took a big box, an appliance box, and I uh, got inside it and uh, cut out uh, little pieces in the, in the box, put it out on the street, and uh, said, electronic brain, um, any question answered, five cents. <laughs> and I would be inside the box with a bunch of books because I could read at a really early age. I was right. a bit of a prodigy that way. And people would throw five cents in, and I'd write out the answers. And if I couldn't figure them out, I'd make them up, and I'd shoot them out. So uh, that was what, that's, that's kind of my, uh, my start in show business. <laughs> <laughs> you went on to graduate. Graduate from York University with a degree in English. And did you have any involvement at all in the comedy scene at that point, or, or? there was no comedy scene at that there, point? There really wasn't. No, there were a bunch of guys telling jokes in strip clubs. Mm -hmm. And in Toronto, there were these kind of funny reviews. Uh, four people. One of them would play piano, and the other three would sing kind of witty ditties um, right. about topical things that were happening in the city or in the country. Right. Uh, with titles like. What's a nice country like you doing in a place like this? There's stuff like that. It had no stand-up right. going on really in, in it. And I didn't really know anything or care anything about stand-up until I graduated from university, got a job at a place called Harborfront, right. which was down on the lake area of the, of the city. And 
they were putting on shows to try to get people to the site so the federal government could spend two, three billion dollars uh, building this area up from, of taxpayers' money. Right. So they wanted to get everybody excited about it. And um, I got a job there after I, um, I graduated. And one of the things I got to do was run this comedy night that they put together. And this was a sea change. Right. This was 1974. And in 1974, everything was changing in comedy in this country because we went from people telling old jokes in tuxedos right. to people doing relevant topical material in sweaters. Mm-hmm. And that's the point that I came in at that very important uh, point of inflection where things were changing. Right. So based on my relationships with those people, based on the fact that I was hosting those shows and was starting to become a bit of a comedian myself, right. when that job ended two years later, that's when I started Yuck Hex. So it, would you say that Harborfront was really where you fell in love with the live performance? Definitely. Yeah. Well, I always loved theater. Right. And in fact, my English degree was mostly um, geared towards modern and contemporary theater. Mm-hmm. And so I would go out to the theater, you know, small Canadian plays, three times a week. Right. But there was no stand-up. Right. There was right. no stand-up. I listened to stand-up on, um, on records like a lot of people did when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, we get high and go into the basement and listen to, you know, Mort Saul or Bill Cosby or somebody right. like that. But in terms of actually going out to see a comedian, live comedy, I don't think I did it till I worked at Harborfront. Right, right. Interesting. In, in, in 1976, you and, and Joel Axler went on to open up the first Yuck Yucks in the basement of Toronto's Church Street Community Center. Tell me about that, and, and, and how did you know that you guys were going to open something that was going to be successful? Did you have a group of people Who that... said we knew anything? <laughs> Jake. Trial by, trial by fire. We knew nothing. We were just doing this to meet chicks. <laughs> no, I'm being totally serious. We were doing this to meet chicks. We wanted attention. Um, we're not exactly the kind of guys who are going to get it at a bar. Right. Um, so we thought this would be a great thing to do. We had fallen in love, remember, with a bunch of comics that we met at Harborfront. They had no place to play. Gosh. They became our, our good friends. Right. We were doing it as much for them as anything else, but we never thought it was anything more than a lark right. that might last a summer, a winter, right. and then we'd have to get some real jobs. Um, I, never had, I never had to look back Right. once I started it. Um, I mean... I didn't make a lot of money, you have to understand, mm-hmm. uh, in the early years, but it was a success from the get-go. Right. People came, people laughed, people loved it, and there was a lot of media attention on it. Um, I knew I was on to something. Right. I just didn't know what. You notoriously yanked uh, a then 14-year-old <laughs> Jim Carrey from the stage on an amateur night, and I know you've, you've told this story a hundred times, but... But he came Here back. Here goes 101. <laughs> 101. He came back three years later with a very polished routine. The second time around, did you know that he was onto something at that point? Yes, but it wasn't anything that I necessarily was looking for or liked. Um, I was looking because I'm a child of the 60s and I have revolution in my blood. Uh, I was always looking for something Lenny Bruce ish. Sure. And the guy who got me to really open the club was a guy named Paul Mandel, mm-hmm. um, who only did comedy for two, three years. Right. But in those two, three years, I mean, it was excoriating stuff. Right. Um, and as, as much, it was scary as much as it was funny. <laughs> he would read his divorce papers on stage while he'd throw sticky buns at the audience and burst into tears. It was performance art on every level. I was looking for something like that. Right. Then Jim Carrey shows up and does an act, which was felt like some kind of retro... Uh, thing that uh, uh, you know uh, who's, the, who's the big impressionist out of Canada Rich oh, Little Rich, now, Rich Little, Little might have done in 1958 sure and 
it didn't really appeal to me right. or to Joel. But the audiences loved it. Right. So we weren't stupid. Right. Obviously, we, we booked them. But, um, yeah, it wasn't our thing. Mm-hmm. Howie Mandel, who came around at the same time, was more of our thing. Right, right. You've had the, obviously, you've had the gift of discovering talent throughout the years. Uh, coming up as a comedian yourself and a club owner, uh, obviously the comedy scene has changed drastically. There, there were groundbreaking acts, like you mentioned, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, uh, uh, John Belushi. Uh, they all had powerful messages about culture and, and, and society in, in their routine. What, what's your take on today's comedy scene, and, and do you think that they measure up as far as the, well, the years a, back then? That's a great question, Jake, because it does kind of grieve me that so many of these comics today, I mean, the really new ones people who call themselves alternative right. aren't really alternative at all sure. that a lot of the comedy has devolved into a silliness mm-hmm. and a goofiness and if there's two things I don't like it's silly or goofy right. I like stuff that's smart uh, pointed has a real point of view but you know I come from a generation that um, is very much a kind of confrontational generation and kids today the kids today um, Aren't, don't have that. They, they don't automatically hate their parents, for instance, today, right. which we did. Right. And that gave us a lot of energy. Sure. That gave us a lot of point of view. We didn't like authority. Right. This is all melted down now. Right. You know, it's not so easy to tell who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in, in the world so much anymore. But in the 60s and the 70s, it was much clearer where the sides were. Mm-hmm. And if you were on the cool side, it was obvious what the cool side was. It's not so easy obvious what the cool side is anymore right. and that's why I think the comics today don't have that kind of larger um, socio-political um, kind of orientation right. that we did then or even people like I mean where's the new Bill Maher where's the new John Stewart where's the new Dennis Miller where's the new fill think, in the blanks right do you think over, overall the, the Canadian landscape I know that uh, it, it seems to be and that's going to actually go into one of my questions a little bit later, but but just since since we're on, on that topic right now, a lot of comics will get a little bit of, of success here, and then they take off to Hollywood, they take off to New York, larger markets. Do you think that we produce enough people here to sustain that? Do you like, to keep them busy? I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay, so I guess people like Bill Amar, people that, that have that political sense of landscape. I mean, here we have people like Rick and Mercer who will poke, poke fun at Kenyan politics and stuff like that. Do you think we... Yeah, but I have to step that? in here and say that count, just count on the CBC mm-hmm. to take somebody who's a powerful political commentator and completely cut his balls off. Right, melt him down. Right. Well, you know, Strombo was a pretty powerful guy, and now he's so it's all lovable. Right. Everything's so lovable. Right. Same thing with Rick Mercer. I remember when Rick Mercer wasn't so lovable, and he was a hell of a lot funnier. Right. Um, he used to attack politicians. Now he plays golf with them on TV. Right. And yeah, he gets a little shot in here and there, but nobody in Canada is doing what you know Bill Maher is doing. Nobody's doing what John Stewart is doing. That's well known. I think Alan Park. Um, is doing some stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think that um, Kenny Robinson is doing stuff like that. I think Glenn Foster is. But they're not really on TV all the time. They're not really recognized by, by the you know, media establishment. Right. Why do but you in, think a, that in a perfect is? world, those guys would have their own shows. For sure. Why do you think people don't take out those, those types of leaps and, and risks? Is it for the sake of security of having a, a long-standing career with the CBC? Or well, you it? said it. I didn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's there the is a thing. natural look. There's a natural timidity right. to our culture here in Canada that sure. the United States doesn't have. The United States, whatever its problems, whatever its limitations, is a revolutionary society. Mm-hmm. It's a revolutionary capitalist society, right. which is a real oxymoron. But sure. it really is true. They're always looking for something new. Mm-hmm. They're always looking for a new marketplace. Right. And it doesn't matter what you're doing if you can sell tickets. If you can make put asses on seats, if you can create viewership, um, there's no judgment on it. Right, right. You'll get a job. Here, we're a conservative socialist society, which is also an oxymoron. Sure. Right? <laughs> right. Um, and here in Canada, um, people. this is a land of people who like their pensions. Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> look, Rick Moranis once said it best. Um, he said... Canada is a land where they hold a beauty contest and they give the prize to the second prettiest girl because they figure the prettiest girl already has enough going for her. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to remember that. (laughs) That's great. Just to switch gears on, uh, obviously, a bit of a more somber note. With, with the recent passing... More somber than somber. <laughs> what we've been talking about? It's a pretty somber show, actually. With the, with the recent passing of, uh, obviously, Robin Williams, comics have often been labeled and, and at times, even self-diagnosed as tortured souls. Uh, you once said, quote, stand-up comedy allowed me to get on stage, say exactly what I believed, and that was kind of psychiatry. Do you still find that true? Is that cathartic in some way? Yes. I think the whole thing is based on therapy. <laughs> um, last night I gave a talk to all the amateur comics in, in Calgary, <laughs> and I said, don't ever forget that you're basically in the massage therapy business. Right. And just like massage therapy, something hurts, you go to a place they push on it, they press on it, they press the buttons. It kind of hurts, but then when they take their finger off, it feels better. Right. Right? Well, in a sense, psychologically, that's what comedy is doing. We live in a world which is so subsumed by bullshit. <laughs> every single moment, every single day, everyone is lying to you. Right. The whole world is a pack of lies. Right. You just become so desperate for the truth that you'll pay a cover charge to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> You're behind, uh, obviously, a groundbreaking show, Late Night with Joan Rivers, really at a time when when female comedians didn't really push the boundaries like Joan did. Uh, Tell me about your relationship with her and what kind of legacy do you think that she left behind? Well, Joan was wonderful to work with, and I didn't just work with her on her um, evening show in Los Angeles. I actually also worked with her in New York three years later on her afternoon show. That wasn't as good a fit for me because it was more serious show right. the show at night at a los angeles was more involved with um with actual entertainment mm-hmm. um so um it was i got to say that you know joan provided me with the best year of my life my favorite year 1986 and i was in la and i had a lot of responsibility on this show and i was driving a rolls royce and i could get into anywhere i wanted to get into and it was an amazing amazing year um, in every way, shape, or form. It was a great job. No one ever questioned what I did. I had the complete trust of Joan and of Fox, television, and everybody. And then they brought in a new executive producer. He canceled the show, and I was out. Wow. But I got the biggest check I've ever seen for leaving, and I moved to Maui for six months. So, you know, <laughs> eh. and I can thank Joan for that too, I guess, can't I? That's true. Yep, every day in the sun with the Hula Girls, I should actually have thought of thanking Joan. Um, Joan was great to work with. Um, unlike a lot of um, Hollywood people, she was never guarded 
in her responses to people. Mm-hmm. Um, what you saw is what you got. If she was upset, she showed it. Right. If she was elated, she showed it. Mm-hmm. And that's terrific because most people in Hollywood, they don't do that. Right. They're very closed. Right. You don't really see the real person. I saw the real Joan. She wasn't afraid to show it to people. Interesting. She was a lot like my mother, but with better writers, actually. <laughs> you know, a Jewish, she, was a, she was a lippy Jewish matron. <laughs> Speaking of that, does religion ever play a part in your life? I wouldn't say religion plays a part, but, but the culture of Judaism plays a, a major part in my life. Mm-hmm. I was brought up kind of quasi or in a quasi-Orthodox home. Okay. Um, I actually, by the time I was 13, probably could have conducted... Um, full services wow. uh, on Saturday mornings, um, completely in Hebrew for hours. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. Right. But what I really did like, and what I've always liked, is the phenomenal contribution of the Jewish people to world culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're a socialist, a capitalist, uh, whether you like... Um, uh, entertainment, whether you like high culture, low culture, we're there. Right. And we've been there. Um, and my favorite sort of flavor, if I can call it that, of, of Jewish life would be post-World War II literary Jewish culture. Uh, the culture of Norman Mailer mm-hmm. uh, and people like that. Right. Uh, Philip Roth is my one of my heroes. Right. Mordecai Richler, uh, one of my heroes. Right. Mostly Leonard Cohen, right. Bob Dylan. Think about this. Um, what kind of crazy people do I come from right. that um, you know less than 1% of the world could produce genius after genius after genius after genius and not keep it for themselves but you know spread that meme virus through you know gentile culture right. to the point where look you can't turn on a television show and look at the credits without seeing Jewish name after Jewish name sure. after Jewish name after Jewish name this is what um, turns me on most about my, my culture mm-hmm. not necessarily um, Israel or going to synagogue or um, nitrate laden corned beef <laughs> but but this rigorous intellectual and artistic tradition. Right, right. That's what turns me on. Beautiful. You once said that comedians, great comedians, share three qualities. They rock to their own rhythm, they have superior writing skills, and they display an exaggerated personality flaw that becomes endearing. Wow, I have good writers. (laughs) You do. (laughs) With the recent reach of things like social media. These are good questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. With the recent reach This is worth doing. Uh, I could be at Holtz shopping. <laughs> That's right. You could be. You've got plenty of time. Reach of uh, social media, reality TV, shows like Last Comic Standing where, where comedians seem to get famous faster, you know, YouTube celebrities. Do you find that the quality of the art has lost its, its way? I think in any generation there's always um, 12 geniuses in every field. That never changes. There's 12 geniuses in comedy out there right now. Right. The only difference is now there's a huge, huge, huge pack of also-rans right. um, of people who are doing fair to middling work. And they all have careers because everything has become so much bigger and there's so much more of an audience now. Right. Uh, but there's always 12 greats right. in every generation. There were 12 greats in the 30s. They were all on radio, probably. And there were 12 greats in the 50s. And they were all you know, on TV. And there's 12 greats now. I could go over who I think maybe the 12 greats might be. Mm-hmm. Maybe a couple. Maybe. Well, you know, I would put the list at 
you know, Louis C.K., Chris Rock, Sarah Silverman, uh, Bill Maher, um, uh, well, Robin's gone, isn't he? Billy Crystal. I mean, I, I could make that list of 12 people who really affect the culture with their comedy. Right. And there's never been fewer, and there's generally never more right. than that. But now there's just a lot of other people who are doing some nice work. Right. right. Filling the gaps. Yeah, and they're filling in the gaps right. that didn't exist before. When you were auditioning people for the club, was there anything special you were looking for in terms of someone who was doing a different kind of comedy or, or just whoever made you laugh the hardest? It isn't really about whether I laugh the hardest because at a certain point I stopped laughing right. and I started uh, treating it like a kind of jazz where I would just you know snap my fingers and go, yeah, that's good. Right, right. I, I rarely laugh at comics. I would just go, that's funny. Mm-hmm. And most people that you would talk to who have done been in the comedy business for many years would say the same thing. Right. Um, it, there's no worse audience than a crowd of uh, comedy producers are just for laughs. Right. Comics hate doing those shows right. because they never laugh. Right. They just sit there judging it. And I have to confess, I do the same thing. Um, but what am I looking for? I'm assuming the audience is going to laugh, but even, even assuming that, uh, I would say I'm looking for some originality I'm, because originality in comedy is the most important thing. Right. I'm looking for a unique voice. I'm looking for some kind of confidence. I'm looking for an iconic character that the people are playing um, because with a really great comic he almost doesn't have to say anything you just know that he's funny because of the the place he's coming from and I'm thinking of somebody like Jeremy Hotz in this who you know could just stand up there and go hello it's all shit and people are just (laughs) laughing because the attitude the character is so precise that people know exactly what he means without him even explicating it so um I'm always looking for those kinds of things. I'm, again, I'm not looking for silly. I'm not looking for slapstick. Right. Um, I'm looking for something incisive, something honest, mm-hmm. something personal, and something as unique as a person's fingerprint. Right. Historically, a lot of performers, uh, as I mentioned before, that have found success in Canada, ultimately headed out to, to markets like Hollywood, New York, to kind of to make it big. Did you ever have... Did that ever bother you? Did you ever have comics that, that you thought, you know what, you can do really well here? But I rationalized it, and I realized that how could I ask people to stay in Canada when, frankly, the money and the power is somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Sure, stay in Canada, make films, Jim Carrey, but no one's going to give him money to make films. Right, right. So why shouldn't he go? Right. Um, the only problem I have is with people leaving earlier than they should, right. and they haven't learned everything they can learn here, because once you get there, you have to have your skill set absolutely perfect to be able to compete in a place where everybody is going. Right. So, but but I, I, I have signed more green card applications than anybody I know. I've driven people to the airport right. to, to get on a plane and go to, go to L.A. Right. with a big hug, right. because I want them to succeed, and succeeding in Canada is virtually impossible at that level. Um, You know, if you wanted to try to count the number of millionaires, comedy millionaires on one in Canada, you could kind of do it in one hand. Mm -hmm. Maybe two. Right. In the States, there are people you've never even heard of that are writers, comedy writers on these shows that you watch. They're not showrunners. They're just writers that live in, you know, $3 million homes in Malibu. Mm -hmm. It's just there's hundreds if not thousands of them. 
Right. So who could deny that? Right. And the weather. Who could deny that? <laughs> I lived in L.A. The weather's unbelievable. And you know what else is great about L.A.? Not L.A. You drive 90 minutes and you're somewhere great. Right. You drive south for 90 minutes, you're in Mexico. You drive east, you're in Palm Springs. You drive north, you're in Carmel. Yosemite, or yeah. I yeah. mean... You drive, if you live in Toronto, you drive 90 minutes, you're in Hamilton. It's just not the same thing. <laughs> You've had your hands in, in so many successful endeavors, so many facets of uh, entertainment world. What, what would you say is the most important part of your legacy that you want people to know? Wow. That's a tough one. Um, you know, I think creating Yuck Yucks and keeping um, and hiring 92% Canadian comics, keeping the... the um, comedy scene Canadian mm -hmm. and being a, a, a very strong advocate of free speech on stage for the last 35 years I think those are the things that I am proudest of. Mm -hmm. I'm also proud of the fact that that's given enough work to enough Canadian comedians that every day 150 people wake up in this country wanting to do what they do and follow their dream and partially because of me uh, they can do it. And that's, I'm pretty proud of that. that. Yeah, definitely. Pretty proud of that. What's ahead for you right now? What, uh, what exciting things do you have on the horizon? What things are you working on? I just put a down payment on uh, my plot, my cemetery plot. And um, I just don't know what to put Grand on. Grand opening soon? Or, just or no, <laughs> well, I don't know what to put on the stone. I think maybe if you lived here, you'd be home by now. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what I'm working on, okay. which is kind of exciting. Oh, okay. um, I wrote... What do we do? What do we do? I think we're good. Yeah? Yeah. I'll cut down the background noise when I edit. Okay, okay. So what I'm, what I'm quite proud of, I spent the last couple of years writing a screenplay with a friend of mine. And uh, the screenplay uh, is all about the um, years where I created Yuck Yucks. 1974 to 1978 and against all odds it looks like I've found a production company where we've got a, a, a name director and this project looks like it's going ahead so I'm really looking forward to the casting sessions where I find someone to play me when I was 24 and that's going to be a uh, that's got to be a blast it's going to be fun absolutely Anybody on the horizon right now that uh, that just completely blows blows you away? People that you're following right now? I have been wild about Aaron Berg for a long time. Um, Aaron is a guy out of Toronto, comes from a really good family, but um, kind of had a very colorful early life where he was Mr. Mr. Natural bodybuilder, but they caught him um, using steroids, so they kicked him out. Um, he's been a gigolo. Um, he's completely tattooed. He's a Jewish guy. He's completely covered in tattoos. Yeah. What have you got? You got the Mogan David on your. Yeah. He's got one. On, he's got oh, one. Does on he really? His, yeah. Wow. Uh, with a with a microphone through it. No way. Yeah. Well, he's great. You got you. You would love him. You've I would got. Love you got. I can yeah. see elements of you in him. In fact. Um, so he's moved to New York, and um, you know it's really strong stuff. So it's going to take it's taking him a while to get that traction, right. but he's a regular in all the big clubs now, and I think it's only a matter of time before you're going to start to see him show up and people will go wild for him. So watch for watch for him because he's really great. Absolutely. Any any news you want to get out there? Any any uh, anything you want to say before we uh, wrap up? 
we're all going to die. I think you should just remember that when you make your next move. <laughs> Every moment is valuable. You know, I had um, a child um, four years ago, um, which meant I had my first child at 58. Right. A little girl, right? A little boy, little but boy, he, has, boy. he has hair so long, he has hair down to his ass. Um, <laughs> blonde hair, it makes it, he looks like Peter Frampton uh, on Frampton Comes Alive from 78. Um, great, great, beautiful boy. Um, and I'm kind of working on a project about older dads now because I find I'm not the only one. Right. Three guys from my high school class had children um, for the first time when they were 55 or older. Right. Three guys in my health club had children for the first time when they were 55 and older. So I think there's some kind of new sociological phenomenon going on with that. So I'm working on something that might turn into a novel or it might be a nonfiction book. I'm not really sure yet, right. but I'm starting to write about that now. That's fascinating. And, and before we wrap it up, I mean, what is, I mean, I've seen your resume. You've, you've done tons of stuff. You're always keeping busy without really the needing to have to keep keep busy. Uh, do you just like to, to keep busy or, or what? what's the spark? What, what keeps you driving? I feel the hot breath of mortality on the back of my neck every moment of my life. So I got to get stuff done. Right, right. I got to get stuff done. I just, I was always the person who always wanted to do things and did stuff and crazy stuff. And, you know, I have a very weird background when I was a teenager. I did pranks and stunts and st- I was just always that guy. Right. Thanks for doing this, Mark. You're I, welcome. I had a great time. Me I, too. I and, they were good que- and they were good questions. Excellent. I Thank do you. enough of these that there's a lot of hacky questions. Right. These weren't hacky questions, and I really appreciate that. I'm glad you took the time. And, and like I said, it was an absolute honor to have you on the show. So I hope we can have you on again if you sure. find the time. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. And there you got it, folks. The long-awaited interview with Mr. Mark Bresland. And I could not... Thank Mark enough for doing that for me. Like I said, I am looking forward to doing a follow-up with him. I think that's a lot of fun now that I've kind of got my feet in the business a little bit. And But, uh, man, great, great interview. Thank you, Mr. Breslin, again for everything. On behalf of myself, your host, Jay Kirsch, executive producer, Kira Williams, the webmaster on the one, twos, and threes, Miss Camille, and, of course, all the wonderful staff at Yuck Yucks. Hope this has been entertaining. Hope you loved it. We will see you next week.